This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Welcome to Idea City on the Air. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Neimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, Conrad Black speaks about Canadian pride. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces Conrad to the stage. This is Conrad Black's third appearance at Idea City. The first time he was here in 2006, he sat alone on a chair and spoke to us quietly and personally and poignantly about his travails with the American justice system. But then later in the talk, unexpectedly, he also brought up the question of Canada, whose citizenship he had renounced as a consequence of a quarrel that he was having with Jean Chrétien over a peerage which the government of the United Kingdom wanted to give to Conrad, who was then at the peak of his career and at the peak of his power. This is what Conrad said at the time. I can't really conduct my defense from any place except Canada, and as a result, I feel I now know Canada much better than I ever knew it before. And I have returned to this country uh, which I always said I would do, incidentally, uh, I have returned to it at an absolutely fascinating time in the history of this country. I mean, all of you who were, as I was, brought up in Canada know that we were brought up to believe Canada was, in Mr. Diefenbaker's phrase, a middle power. And that really even those who, who found it a grating practice were more or less resigned to the fact that much of our role in the world was tugging at the trouser leg of the United States. It is indeed an astoundingly rich country inhabited by a very well-educated population. And there's a huge opportunity for Canada. There are now 191 member states in the United Nations and Canada is without a question one of the ten most important ones. It is real, and it is something that is a huge opportunity for this country, and it is a terribly exciting time to have returned to Canada. Now at the time, there were cynics in the audience who thought that that was insincere, and that Conrad was doing it because he wanted to re-ingratiate himself with the country that he had to return to in order to continue with his defense. Well, here is his rebuttal. 
all 1,106 pages of it with a thud factor that is very satisfying. Conrad Black. Thank you, Moses. Thank you all very much for your welcome. I hope that the unsettling experience I had of having things attached to me and run down my collar and both ways from my waist enables you to hear me at least that it accomplished that because it certainly was a um, startling experience while it lasted. Um, I, I want to, I had not realized that the intro would be what it was, but I certainly don't uh, modify any of what I said then. And indeed, as Moses has generously put my book out, I somewhat traced the pattern that was just touched upon in the, in the clip we saw from a few years ago throughout this book. It is, I put it to you, Canada's moment. And I don't think and having launched this book, uh, I, we had a very heavy promotion of it. Uh, the book tour was a, was a punishing reenactment of the death march of Bataan in a colder climate. It was three trips out across the country. And that confirmed that I don't think that Canadians still recognize the extent to which Canada's fundamental importance in the world has evolved positively for this country. Coming up after the break. I doubt that you've got a more uh, profound exposure to the history of this country than I did, and the essence of it was that we had some very interesting swashbuckling explorers, but after that it just happened. This episode of Idea City on the Air is brought to you by Zoomer Magazine. We'll be back in a moment with more from Conrad Black. For more information about Idea City or to watch hundreds of talks online, go to ideacity.ca. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. You're listening to Conrad Black speak about Canadian pride. When I was taught history in the elementary and secondary school systems of this jurisdiction, uh, and, and I uh, imagine many of you, whether of my vintage or, an, or a later one, also went through essentially the same system, and I, I doubt that you've got a more uh, profound exposure to the history of this country than I did, and the essence of it was that we had some very interesting swashbuckling explorers, but after that it just happened. It was like a tree growing, there was a certain inevitability to it, and we got a chronology that both the teachers and the authors of the school texts went to preternatural lengths to make as uninteresting as possible. <laughs> and and uh, it just evolved, and it was implicitly a soporific contrast to the rise and rise of the great and heroic United States. And I don't say that in any mockery. Uh, you may appreciate that the last decade has not 
filled me with a, an inflammatory affection for America. <laughs> but but I, as, as my book and the history of that country published two years ago made clear, I, I yield to no one in my recognition that the rise of America in two long lifetimes from the American Revolution to the end of World War II, at which time it had half of the economic product of the world and an atomic monopoly, was a rise of a country without the slightest precedent or parallel in the history of the world. And it, it has been an astonishing thing, and the United States has had the eyes of the world on it from when it was founded throughout its life as a country. And that presence and that mythos has emphasized Canadian tendencies to modesty and even to self-doubt. Well, they're rather nice qualities at times, and I think we can appreciate that, uh, that it is a good thing not to be too full of self-importance. But I think in this, in this one area, perhaps Canadians have gone to extremes a bit. And the reason this country grew from Samuel de Champlain, about 50 Europeans 400 years ago, milling about with the native people, quite amicably, Champlain was a respecter of the native people and got on well with them, to a G7 country and one of the 10 or 12 most important countries in the world today with a very high standard of living and an educated population and, and a stable government, system of government. Uh, the reason was because of the intelligent decisions taken by a succession of statesmen and influential individuals in the history of this country when the probabilities would have been that they wouldn't have made the decisions they made and it wouldn't have worked out at any stage as well as it did. Uh, many of you would be familiar with perhaps all of it and all of you with some of it, but this may be an angle that you haven't, most of you thought of. And I hadn't thought of it until I really got right into the subject. The population of the northern half of this continent was always going to do well because it is a rich area, despite its harsh climate in places, as long as they were in an advanced contemporary civilization. And I don't want to sidetrack things into a discussion of the native people uh, who have great merits and many grievances. But when the Europeans arrived here, that was a Stone Age culture. They had not invented the wheel. They hadn't invented the adaptation of metal or how to knit fabrics. And and they were not going to they were not going to prosper and they were not going to be able to hold this territory with the way transportation was advancing and people were bound to arrive from other continents but given a contemporary civilization as the uh, way of life of the population of the northern half of North America those people would prosper but turning that prosperity into a distinct and successful political identity did not necessarily follow and was not going to be easy. It had to start out as French because otherwise it simply would have been lumped in with the American. Coming up after the break. The reality of popular belief superseded the, the facts and of course the United States did become the great torchbearer of democracy. This episode of Idea City on the Air is brought to you by Zoomer Magazine. 
We'll be back in a moment with more from Conrad Black. Idea City is a program of talks about the world's biggest ideas, featuring the world's smartest people. For more information about the three-day Idea City live conference or to watch hundreds of talks online, go to ideacity.ca. Welcome back to Idea City on the air. You're listening to Conrad Black speak about Canadian pride. Then, because the division, the strategic division between the rise of Richelieu and two centuries later, the end of Napoleon, was that France had an unconquerable army in continental Europe, but Britain had an unchallengeable navy on the high seas. Ultimately, control of Canada had to pass from the French to the British, but it had to do so quite close to a point where the Americans ceased to be British. That way, and only in that way, would the British be able to guarantee the security of Canada, which they certainly weren't going to do if it was a French possession, and, and could they have the motivation to guarantee it against the Americans, because they would not have had that motivation if the Americans were still part of the British Empire. And we managed that transition. It was coincidences, but it was also statesmanship. Carleton passed the Quebec Act, exchanging French Canada's loyalty to Britain for Britain's guarantee of the French language, religion, civil law in 1774, and he had to go back as governor and lobby for it for four years to get it through the British Parliament, and it came through just one year ahead of the start of the hostilities of the American Revolutionary War. And and the French Canadians adhered to their word, and they sent Benjamin Franklin and the then loyal to the American Revolution, Benedict Arnold, packing at the start of the war. We narrowly got through the War of 1812, which was entirely provoked by the British by treating the Americans high-handedly on on the Atlantic Ocean. Bear in mind the mythos had now started. The Americans, and, and I think even they, and goodness knows they're not modest about claiming great things for the founders of their country and for their country generally, and they're right to be proud of it. It's a great country. The fact that it persecuted me half to death doesn't mean it isn't a great country. (laughs) But their achievement in in helping to persuade the British to evict the French from Canada and then recruiting the French to help them evict the British from America where these colonists manipulated the two greatest powers in the world was one of the great acts of statesmanship in history. And they don't, even the Americans don't give themselves adequate credit for it. Well, then they created the theory that it was the dawn of human liberty, but it was really a a somewhat grubby tax war. The British doubled their national debt fighting the Seven Years' War and said to the Americans, you people are the wealthiest British subjects, you, and we did this largely for you, so you help us pay for it. And they said, oh no you don't, you know, you spent the money, no taxation without representation, and then they sold this as the dawn of human liberty. Well, the the Americans had no more rights at the end of the revolution than at the beginning, other than having a government resident in their own territory. 
They had no more rights than citizens of Britain or citizens of Netherlands or citizens of Switzerland or parts of Scandinavia. But that wasn't the point. Jefferson and the others put this over and the reality of popular belief superseded the, the facts. And of course, the United States did become the great torchbearer of democracy and they improved their own democracy and abolished slavery eventually, and, and we owe to them, and we must never forget nor fail to be grateful for the fact that it is to the United States we owe the fact that democracy and the free market have triumphed in most of the world. We had to keep pace with this, and we had to, first of all, use that delicate period between the 50 years between the War of 1812 and the U.S. Civil War, the end of it, to put Canada in a position that it had some ability to aspire to being an independent country. And this wasn't like falling off a log because we had to get our independence from the British without irritating them because they were the only country that could guarantee us opposite the United States. If we exasperated the British too much, they'd trade their interests in this country for something else that the Americans could give them elsewhere and, and we would have been swallowed whole. Now, I understand that that wouldn't have been the worst fate in the world. The United States is a great country. But the raison d'etre of this country is that we can actually produce, in some ways, a better political society in complete friendship and respect opposite the United States. Coming up after the break. What was and remains today the only transcontinental bicultural parliamentary confederation in the history of the world. It's a unique system of government for us. You're listening to Idea City on the Air, brought to you by Zoomer Magazine. We'll be back in a moment with more from Conrad Black. Get the latest idealist news, presenter information, and watch hundreds of talks at ideacity.ca. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. We now conclude Conrad Black's talk on Canadian pride. Baldwin and Lafontaine recognized that to get anything coherent in what was becoming Canada, you had to have cooperation between the English and French Canadians, was to assist the Canadian leaders, led by John A. Macdonald and George Etienne Cartier, to create what was and remains today the only transcontinental bicultural parliamentary confederation in the history of the world. It's a unique system of government for us, and we get impatient with it at times. It isn't perfect, but in all of that time, 148 years next month, we have had not more than 100 deaths from civil strife in this country. It is an amazing record, and it has hung together with difficulty at times, but it has hung together. And of all the countries of the world, the only ones with a larger population than Canada that have had essentially the same political institutions for a longer time are the United Kingdom and the, and the United States, nobody else. MacDonald had to deal with separatist and annexation of sentiments in the West by uniting the country with a railway. We had no capital markets to pay for it, and we had to build it across the Canadian Shield, not across, or not all the way across the Great Plains. Putting a railway north of Lake Superior on the Canadian Shield was a 
terrible challenge. It was an engineering marvel. And we had to get all the money outside this country. And, and it was managed just in time to suppress the real rebellion. And the suppression of that rebellion was used as grounds for the final financing of the railway. MacDonald managed that. Even in 1891, there was an annexationist movement led, uh, not without its ironies, in the light of current facts, by the Toronto Star. And <laughs> when Sir Wilfrid Laurier came to office, he and the, the minister responsible, Clifford Sifton, devised an immigration policy where Canada was advertising for immigration all over Eastern Europe. This was a terribly ambitious thing for this dominion, an ambiguous status that the Americans professed to regard as merely a colony with a different name. In 1912, a year after Laurier's government left office, but the same policy, we admitted 402,000 immigrants to this country in a population of under 7 million. It, it, would, it would be like having 3.5 million immigrants now. In the World Wars, Canada, along with Australia and New Zealand, were the only countries in history to contribute personnel for combat on the scale that would have been available if conscription had been resorted to, which it wasn't in Canada other than at the very end, despite the fact that the war was overseas and Canada itself was not under threat. No one was threatening us. We did it for the cause of freedom. We did it in part out of solidarity with the British, but that wasn't really it. We did it for a cause. Now, these are remarkable things. Now, I'm down to my last 30 seconds, but I just want to leave you with the thought that we, we, we don't want to become a nation of braggarts. We're not trying to conquer the world, but we can set an example. And we can set an example of intelligent government, imaginative legislation, and to a large degree are setting an example of being a tolerant society. And, and we just need a bit more panache, a consciousness of what our forebears and our nationality have done, an awareness of what is available, and as Mr. Lincoln said, with malice toward none and charity for all, we can make it a country recognized everywhere as it already, in fact, is one of the greatest countries in the world. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year and find Hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.